Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. Radio BX is a natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome to Radio BX. It is May 7th, 2020. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, from the Building Energy Exchange, and we couldn't be happier uh, that everyone's listening into our live interview and podcast series. We are, of course, recording this while large swaths of the globe are still sheltering in place to mitigate the spread of the COVID-19 virus. And you all are all very much in our thoughts. I'm um, just hoping everybody listening in that all your friends and loved ones uh, are healthy and safe. You know, one of the slight silver linings of this pandemic has been the extent to which some of us have been spurred to kind of connect with people that we don't usually see. And here at BX, we're committed definitely to using this video conferencing technology to keep our community engaged. Um, so thank you to everyone uh, that is that is listening. Whether you're a designer, policymaker, developer, Passive House is dominating conversations on high-performance buildings uh, and has been for quite some time now. I would say only a few years ago, most of us considered Passive House a kind of obscure German project, um, something slightly unconventional, sort of a slightly strange way of looking at buildings. But now that we've all kind of dug into it more and really considered um, the aspects of it and its benefits, you fast forward now to 2020, it's pretty hard to overstate the primacy of Passive House as a subject in building policy and development circles. The benefits of the approach are now apparent to virtually everyone that is concerned with the performance of buildings, and the principles of the standard are being slowly absorbed into the regulatory ecosystem, ecosystem of codes and laws that dictate uh, the design of buildings. And few people in North America are more knowledgeable about the implementation of Passive House than our guests today. Lois Arena is Director of Passive House Services at Stephen Winter Associates. Lois has completed or is currently consulting on more than 7 million square feet of Passive House projects, both in North America and overseas, including many of the largest and most challenging projects in the world. In addition to her 25 years of experience in building science, she holds both the US and international Passive House certifications, and as you might expect, presents regularly to conferences and private firms around the world on the benefits and roadblocks to Passive House adoption. Monty Paulson is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he leads the Passive House team at RDH Building Science. RDH is consulting on or certifying more than 5 million square feet of Passive House projects in the US and Canada. And Monty is currently running a series of workshops called A Pattern Language for Passive House. Those are beginning May 19th, and you can register through our friends at the Zero Emissions Building Exchange, Zebex. Um, for those, highly, highly recommended. I've heard many, many good things about, about those workshops. And Monty also has his own online gig as co-host of the Passive House Happy Hour, um, which is happening uh, Wednesday afternoons at 7 p.m. Eastern um, and uh, or afternoons on the West Coast and <laughs> evenings, uh, evenings here. Um, and you can register for that via Passive House Accelerator. Lois and Monty, welcome to Radio BX. Thank Thanks you. you both for being here. Thanks, Yata. I kind of I wanted to start uh, this conversation with your backgrounds and and ask whether each of you knew 
sort of earlier in your careers that you would be focusing on sustainability uh, in general? And, and then sort of more specifically, how you sort of came to Passive House as something, uh, as a subject to sort of focus on. Um, Lois, you want to start? Sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was in sustainability as a, an undergrad. I was a forestry major. So uh, I knew I was going to be in sustainability. But when I graduated from undergrad, now 90% of us who worked at the Pizzeria Uno also had degrees. Uh, we were going through a nice recession back then. And I was like, okay, something more technical maybe would be good. So I went back to get my master's in building energy science. Um, and from then on, I've been employed nonstop. Um, and I got into Passive House um, when I joined Stephen Winter back in uh, 2007. A couple of years after that, we started to get a couple of calls. I was doing building science research, and we started to get a couple of calls asking about whether we did this Passive House consulting. And it was like two or three calls within a week's time, something that I didn't, didn't want to ignore. So I thought, well, let me look at this up. And so I said to Stephen, I said, you know, I think we need to do this. I think we need to get trained in this. And he didn't want to. He was like, no, that's a lot of money, you know, three days of training, three times in Boston. Three days. So I was like, no, we should do it. And every time he sees people, he's like, she proves me wrong every time I talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Monty, how did your path uh, start and end? I squandered my youth as a journalist. <laughs> I did not know I that. worked as a photojournalist and then an investigative reporter. Um, and I had made a mid-career switch to energy modeling. And then Passfoss really found me. Like a lot of energy modelers, I was aware that we weren't very good at what we did. We considered plus or minus 15, 20% to be awesome. But, you know, I don't have the same feeling if my banker were plus or minus 20% <laughs> of my money, I wouldn't right. feel awesome about that. Um, in 2008, our minister for sport here in British Columbia was traveling around the world, uh, hyping the future 2010 winter games, which are going to be here in Vancouver and nearby Whistler, right. and telling folks all over the world that they'd be the greenest Olympics ever. And it was a it was a big brag, um, and a group of Austrian Passivhaus experts early to this kind of listened to him share this at some meeting somewhere in the EU, and looked at each other and said, "Hold my hefeweizen," and built a passive house in Whistler in 2009. It was completely prefabbed in Austria. It was designed and it was used as uh, the broadcast studio for the Austrian national television. And the great thing about ski racing is there's lots of time between races. So they broadcast a ski race. And then in between races, they'd show you the triple pane windows or the heat recovery ventilator or the <laughs> compact system or these other pieces. So it was this big advertorial. And it was really just Austrians advertising to Austrians. But um, I was invited to come watch it get assembled. And I met uh, Guido Wimmers there, who actually came over to be the Passfast consultant for it. Um, and it just sort of blew my mind. It was like, wow, this is a system that uses the energy model, not only as a modeling tool, but also as a compliance tool. Uh, and it's a system that has a lot of science behind it. And it, um, I, I remember driving back from Whistler for the two days I was up there watching them together thinking, man, I want to learn to do what they know how to do. Yeah. That's um, great. And then there was a second huge happenstance that about the same time, the same instinct that caused our minister of sport to be going to Europe saying, we'll do the greenest Olympics ever, also elected a city council in 2009 that made this ambition to be one of the greenest cities in the world. 
And they were initially focused on transportation. They didn't initially understand how important building emissions are. Right. And once they did, the hilarious thing was there was actually like a six or nine month period where people walking around Vancouver City Hall saying, oh, we got to invent a standard to get carbon emissions out of buildings. Like, we got we to do this. This is our problem. How do we do this? And myself and several others were kind of tapping them on the shoulder and saying, come to Whistler. Let us show you something. There's this really innovative pilot project. So it was a great pilot project. It was affordable. It was well-scaled. And it was, by happenstance, exactly at the right time when a lot of folks here were interested in ways to get um, primarily carbon emissions out of heating and domestic hot water. That's great. For Now that you both have been working with this uh, for so, so long, what do you feel like are the really primary, most important benefits of Passive House for the, for the users, for building owners and, and for tenants and occupants? You know, for, for our owners, it's sort of proof of concept. So we've got the first ones that are built and they're actually starting to see the energy savings. Mm-hmm. So they can actually then go to their lenders and they're trying to do that. And there's been a huge push in the last year, year and a half to get the lenders to now start to underwrite the savings that they're actually seeing. So they've done all this initial investment and now they're actually going to be able to use it as a tool to further their development, more passive house projects. That's what I think is a huge benefit to them. More, more savings means more units of affordable housing. Right. Really, really important. Yeah. Monty, are you, what are you seeing uh, out in Vancouver yeah, I mean, there's a lot of benefits, and we keep finding new ones, interestingly. But the, the three basics would be for the high-end builders, the builders of luxury condos, and that's a big part of the market here. Uh, it's comfort. They're selling comfort. It's a level of quiet and comfort and indoor air quality and thermal comfort that, um, frankly, gives an excuse to charge $2 million for a condo, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so they're, they're looking for something beyond green because they've already been selling every building as the greenest building in the world for a decade. Um, so for the high-end folks, and that would include single family and some um, larger, more expensive buildings, for the affordability folks, which would be BC Housing and the Vancouver Affordable Housing Group and others, it's the relatively low incremental cost to build the building and consistent operating costs, operating costs that are low and quite predictable going forward that are quite appealing to them. Um, and I think for the city itself, for the people acting in the public interest, it's one of the two cheapest ways to cut greenhouse gas emissions for the city, the other being bike lanes and getting people out of cars and on bicycles, that cost taxpayers very little because most of the construction gets paid for by somebody else. They just have to put little crumbs of incentives out there, and they lock in long-term emissions reductions. Yeah. So I think the fact that there's something for everybody is what makes it work. That helps. Lois, you mentioned affordable housing, at least in the Northeast. Is that the typology where it's been most successfully integrated passive house? Uh, or is it not as simple as that? Is, is it being used much more broadly? It's No, it, it's, I would say 75% of our passive house projects are multifamily affordable projects, large scale. Right. Um, and the reason for that is because the developers actually pay. They have the financial incentive. They, ha- they pay for the heating, the domestic hot water. And uh, sometimes the cooling and all the common area spaces. So we can reduce their cost. They actually see the incentive in it. Whereas for market rate, those apartment dwellers usually pay their own utilities. So there's not that investment in it for them financially. 
However, like Monty said, we do have market rate programs, multifamily, where they want to differentiate themselves and they want to use that. And they're doing well with it. They're doing well with that, yeah. that comfort. I mean, it strikes me that somewhat paradoxically, there's almost more of a reason for the public money to be put into incentives for market rate buildings to pursue passive house <laughs> than affordable <laughs> and in, in, in some ways. Um, so, you know, one of the, the reasons that it is so easily applied um, to housing uh, broadly, obviously, is that it has, with its focus on the envelope, uh, high-performance envelope, it, it really drives down heating demand to a very dramatic degree. And I think a lot of people wonder, uh, you know, how applicable it is, uh, just on a technical level, to commercial offices and other typologies that are sort of dominated by cooling loads. And I, I'd be interested to hear both of your thoughts on that. I, we're going through a kind of second generation of larger passive house projects. I, I'd say our first generation was all single family. And then we've been through several years of lots of uh, multifamily, much of it affordable or if not technically affordable rental under rental incentive programs. Right. And we're now seeing um, dormitories. We have quite a few dormitories, including some we're working on with Lois. Uh, we have some daycare centers. Uh, we have our first community center in Surrey, which is a really fascinating building. Um, there is discussion about some medical offices and some other offices. We haven't actually done a passive house office building yet. We've had several that have modeled and looked at it, but I think that's more a function of Vancouver hasn't built a lot of office spaces of any type in the last <laughs> few years because the most profitable development has been residential and it's there's a bit of a lag happening and it'll be really interesting to see coming out of coronavirus if the demand for office space goes up or down. I have no clue. Um, I don't think there's a technical barrier to office space. I think we can lower cooling loads really effectively. What PassFouse does is it forces you to think about both your internal heat gains and your external heat gains right from the beginning of the process and to keep checking back in with it through the review before construction and through construction and design stage review and afterwards. So while the principles are no different than for any other office building, the focus on them is brought to bear in a more specific way. At least on the two projects we've been with, the primary barrier to office space has been real estate marketers who convince office developers that they don't have, if they don't have 100% glass around the building, they're going to fail and nobody will rent it, nobody will want it. And so there's a the perceptual barrier of what the market is, that kind of hindsight that marketers bring, seems to be a greater hurdle for office developers than it does for residential developers. Yeah. I also suspect that those brokers and marketeers show those people those offices when they're empty of furniture, <laughs> uh, ceilings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> before the glass is already all covered up. <laughs> well, they, they actually stage them with like 30% of the desks any normal office would have to put in there to afford that floor space rate. Right, right. Lois, what's your experience sort of applying this to commercial buildings and high cooling demand buildings? So we've done everything from uh, some really dense office, really large office space in Boston that's new, that's under construction, to industrial factories in Sri Lanka, right? You climb zone one, hot, humid. The concepts apply. It just air tightness to control the transfer of heat and cooling in and out of the building, the reduction of solar gains, reduction of internal gains to reduce cooling. It, it, it's a very successful set of principles. 
one principle may have a higher impact than others in that particular climate zone, but it really can be applied to anything we've worked on. We've got hotels coming through. Hopefully the hotel industry isn't just completely gutted by what's happening right now and those go through, but they're still working towards the end of their design phase. So they haven't pulled back yet. And what a better place for super quiet, super comfortable, right? Than a hotel. I've had so many bad hotel experiences in my life. So um, I just think the concepts really apply to anything you're working on. They really do. I've always uh, thought that nothing could be better for passive house marketing than if there was like a really excellent passive house hotel in New York City. You know, everybody We're that went through, on it. <laughs> everybody that went through, I, I've heard rumors, uh, but I wasn't going to ask about it. it. Um, I mean, it sounds like one of the questions that I get from people is whether, you know, we are unfortunately in a warming world. And so cooling demands are going to be going up almost everywhere um, in among all types of buildings. And I keep hearing this concern that passive house will be sort of less effective in that. But it sounds like neither of you would sort of agree with that because it's it's no. applicable across the board. Yeah, I would, I would completely disagree with that. More so, I mean, Passive House has already been practiced worldwide. There are great Passive House projects in Portugal, in Spain, in Greece, yeah. in Italy. There's right. a few, you know, uh, Lois just mentioned one in Sri Lanka. So not only is it applicable, but it's, from my perspective, a huge shortcut. Um, we've been pretty blessed with a very moderate climate here in the Pacific Northwest for a long time. And it hasn't been until the last few summers of heavy smoke events and brief heat waves that we've kind of got a glimpse of what's ahead. And we've started running all of our buildings, past house and not through future climate scenarios as part of the modeling process and bringing to our clients' attention, look in the lifespan of this building, the climate is changing quite significantly. Several degrees plus urban heat island effects and, um, and tipping point effects we might not know about. And at first, everyone sort of scratched their head and said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And it's like, nope, let's just go see what they do in Greece. Let's just go see what they do in Spain. They have solved this problem. They know how to build for climates that have wide variation. And the Passos community internationally is this great network of people who have worked out lots of the little tricks. Um, and that, that learning, that synergy is huge, I think. Yeah. So thinking about the fact that Passive House has been, to some extent, mostly constrained to affordable housing to date. The majority of projects have been in that sector. What, what you know, and Lois mentioned the kind of the sort of financial split incentive and market rate um, housing that maybe acts as a curb to to its introduction there. But are there are there other things that are hold? Are there technologies that aren't available that hold Passive House from back from being applied to certain market sectors that that we could see coming in to our markets to influence, uh, you know, the degree to which it's adopted in other building types? You know, I think that we we do have supply chain issues, even on the, the housing side. It doesn't stop passive house from being adopted. The one, one or two building types that I think where it, it gets even more difficult is where you have super high ventilation rates and and very uh, specific ways that it can be recovered. Uh, One is a laboratory, right? You can't have a normal heat recovery core in a laboratory. So what we have out there now for for technical equipment that we can use is this sort of like separated glycol loop that's only about 30% efficient. And so it makes it very, very hard to make heating demands on those buildings. Uh, Hospitals would be another uh, area. But 
you know, these high energy use buildings, it's not that they can't do passive house. The co- again, the concepts will apply. It's about getting the best you can at the time. And, and sort of like they will come, right? Eventually they will come. I'll look at the windows that we didn't have five years ago. Yeah. And now you've got this array of windows. I think ERVs are next. I think heat pump water heaters are next. Um, but you can still get to passive house with what's in the market today. Right. Yep. I would completely agree. I, I think it's also a really exciting time of a lot of innovation. Um, you know, the first Passfaust hospital is near completion now in Germany. We've, Lois and we have worked together on some big dormitory kitchens that are really mm-hmm. challenging for those mm-hmm. exact same ventilation rates. Yeah. So while it might have been true five or eight years ago that some of these typologies were kind of new, there's a heck of a lot of information out there, and it's still a relatively small group of us sharing it. Lois is one of the first pe- people I call for help. <laughs> um, but uh, it it's changing more fast, more quickly than I ever would have imagined a decade ago when I started. Yeah. Yeah. So shifting a bit to our really current immediate context and sort of thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic and you know, people are now thinking about how we reemerge from, uh, you know, everyone working from home effectively, um, except for essential services, um, and sort of thinking about the role of the built environment, uh, what a primary role that is, and that sort of reemergence, people going back to offices. How do you feel passive houses are positioned to sort of help their occupants in a kind of world dominated by these concerns? Or does Passive House need to also raise its game, you know, in the face of this crisis? Yeah, I, I think um, that's a really important question that everybody's asking right now. Like, how tight is too tight? You know, we've heard all of these things about dilution now and humidity levels for proper health of our respiratory systems. We were just talking about this the other day. You know, you want humidity levels in a certain range. You want a certain level of ventilation filtered. And Passive House actually offers you these things already. They're part of that by controlling the filtration on our ventilation by recoup uh, recouping energy and moisture in the building in the winter we're keeping things much healthier and um, I think it's just sort of emerged as okay this already exists as a way to deal with some of these health issues that we're facing right now yeah yeah I I think we re- need to rethink architecture and design on many levels. We have to adapt to climate change. We have to take mitigation seriously. We have to cope with a massive wave of urbanization that's coming. Uh, you know, there's estimates that one to three billion people will be migrating in the next 20 or 30 years because of climate change. New York City and Vancouver, the kind of places are going to try to come. Um, and we have to deal with affordability like we never have before we're probably not coming out of this with the same resources we went into it with in a lot of cases. What I find repeatedly is, as we try to deal with those new constraints, the evolution of past files, because it didn't just come from one person's head, it's evolved over a couple of decades, has left us exceptionally well-prepared. And I'd like to give one specific example. I was on a call, because everything's a Zoom call now, right? I was on a call a couple of weeks ago about uh, ventilation and COVID and these rates and after some chewing through with various people, it became clear that one of the building design problems is that you wanted a building that 
99% of the time could function very well at a half an air change an hour, you know, 0.7 an air change an hour, nice residential rate, good for health and air quality. But then when something like COVID came along, you wanted 10 air changes an hour as an option suddenly. And, you know, people are like, but you can't design a mechanical system that can do both of those well. You can't just flip a switch and suddenly have all this extra air change until someone pointed out, sure, sure you can't. You just open the windows. And Passive House has required both balanced filtered ventilation and operable windows for a long time. It's been baked into the piece. And so it struck me as interesting how the the requirement list that is probably the most healthy, most practical set of requirements for managing infectious air has been baked into the Passive House standard for almost two decades. Yeah. Agreed. I was on a call earlier today with someone discussing a net zero actual office building in Colorado and Boulder. And they, in the face of COVID had decided to increase the filtration on a new, it's a building that's coming out of the ground now. Um, they increased it to MERV 18, um, which is, is uh, pretty serious. Um, but they had only had to increase it from, I think either 13 or 16. I, I forget now, but um, the point being that because they already had an envelope largely modeled on Passive House. Uh, it was super tight, uh, well insulated. They already had this high functioning ventilation system. It wasn't really an energy hit to go to MERV 18 or a cost hit, and and they're still going to meet their net zero goal, um, which is yeah. is really heartening. Um, and it just speaks to the degree to which teams that are following this standard are prepared for these um, these situations best. Um, I think. You know, one of the areas I also, it, it seems to me where this could be most effectively applied is within existing buildings because new buildings are going to be able to more easily deal with these new challenges of kind of post-COVID um, environments. Um, but with existing buildings, I think uh, they're going to need a lot of work. Um, and Passive House seems um, like a really excellent uh, model to use. And I wonder if you could each speak to your experience uh, working with and applying Passive House to existing buildings and the effectiveness of that. Sure. I mean, if you're dealing with occupant in place retrofits, complete world of hate right there, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> so hard, so hard to get it. If you can't, hit the outside of that building because it's historic or lot line issues or something like that, then your hands are so tied to, to, to so many things. Um, but if you're doing gut rehab and nobody's in the, in the building and we have a lot more options then and completely feasible. So if you're doing a gut rehab, you're already changing out things that are end of life and you're just doing that incremental cost above. It's like doing new construction almost. You're just looking at incremental cost about, above what you would have normally done. But existing buildings, if things are not at the end of their life, if you, if you can't address the exterior, if it is occupied, it becomes much more complicated. And I honestly think the most complicated thing to deal with is the ventilation. Because if you don't have existing ductwork that you can repurpose in the building, really disruptive to the tenants. It can be done. It's just disruptive and expensive. So I think that's where the biggest challenge is in retrofit in place applications. Yeah. yeah. No, I would agree with all that. Um, here at RDH Building Science, we have 
among the most experienced with renovating buildings in our region. And that is limited to like a handful of buildings. There just isn't nearly enough deep energy retrofit happening. And so our, you have to take our experience with a grain of salt because it's a, it's a few buildings, which is a few more than most of them. But it's, it's embarrassing how much our pattern here on the West Coast has just been to tear things down and build something new rather than to start over. I think that, I don't know, it's possible that might be one of the biggest things that comes out of this particular crisis is that people are aware of their space. Uh, they've they've seen things they love and really hate about where they live, and I think people might make different demands. They might choose to move to to choose different places. Balconies are clearly going to be really popular, and bigger balconies more popular. Good ventilation, good sound control, good thermal control. So I I think this will create more demanding customers. There's also a lot of talk about green stimulus. And I think we all understand that we can't go back to building highways and pipelines and survive the climate crisis. And many have projected that the fastest way to put people to work is put on existing buildings rather than new buildings. They can just get going quicker. And so if we can come up with a stimulus program that puts people to work more quickly, renovating existing buildings, and there's a hunger for that at the same time, that could could happen. Um, I think it's a deep structural issue in terms of how we pay for it and who gets the incentive and who gets the benefit. It, it kind of, it's a really tough nut to, to work on. Uh, there in New York, you know, NYSERDA has been trying really hard to get some smart retrofit programs going for several years now. Um, we have similar efforts run by Pemina and others here in BC. Um, but I don't think anybody's quite found the pieces that go together. One of the ideas were kicking around with the city of Vancouver, and this is a very small scale, this is not the New York scale buildings, but you know we have a city with a lot of single family houses, a lot of houses like you'd find in Queens or out of Brooklyn. And we're thinking about an offer where you could legally cut your house into three or four apartments fully legally if you do a deep energy retrofit along the scale of Enerfit and I might or might not have to certify. Um, so we're looking for ways to create incentives that don't have the government paying out a lot of cash, but kind of unlock the value and equity and the hunger of people to maybe recreate their space and create some more building science value in their space. Uh, and that's a conversation I'd love to keep having if other people have super bright ideas, like get in touch. Yeah. Um, I know that it will be easier for you uh, because you have a functioning federal government. Um, but, uh, yes, it is a challenge, definitely across yeah. across the board. Um, I did. I wanted just to step back. Lois mentioned ventilation and the challenges of that in 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 existing buildings. And there was a question from one of the listeners about the role of distributed systems in existing buildings, uh, and and you know how easily it, you can apply those, and whether that's kind of the answer in a lot of these situations. Well, there's a number of different strategies, and it, it just all depends on. Do you have any mechanical closets on that floor? You know, do you have chases in the building? Do you have, it's all about what you're given as your template. Do you have enough room in the unit to hang one from a ceiling somewhere and just give a minimal ducted unit? Honestly, I think right now during this time crisis, we're trying to avoid going into apartments that are occupied. So more central or or semi-distributed systems will be better where you you can work from the corridor and just pop in. but. it, there's a there's a number of ways to do it given a particular building. That's the thing about existing too. Not cookie cutter, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
It is one of the most vibrant debates we have on new and existing projects, centralized ventilation versus localized ventilation. And there is no absolute winner on science or on economics. They, they trade off depending on the situation. There is a lot to be said for local ventilation. To putting it in the unit gives you a lot of control. It gives you probably your best energy performance. Um, and as a retrofit strategy, it gets you out of having to go through all the fire compartments that you probably have to go through unless you already have a chaseway for centralized ventilation. And that code juggling could tip the balance in favor of local in many cases. I also think the supply chain is changing pretty rapidly around retrofits. We're seeing smaller and smaller apartment scale local units or local units that are integrated with a heat pump so they can do a little bit of heating or cooling. Those are almost ubiquitous in China at this point. So I think once the demand for retrofits starts to climb in North America, you're going to see both that Chinese supply chain of smaller more appropriate for local units start to come here. And you're going to see North American manufacturers saying, heck, we can build that. We can do a better version of that. So I think it's one of those chicken and egg things. The market has to change for the supply chain to react, but the supply chain kind of knows where it needs to go. And what about, I mean, I keep people ask me often about these magic box type systems where everything's in one unit that, you know, sort of plug it into your apartment. Are those... Uh, feasible, or is that really a, a, are those really a, um, something that can be applied only to new construction? I would say no. I mean, you could use it in a retrofit application. We just don't have any. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we have the right ones. Yeah. It it is. First of all, if I had ten dollars for every time somebody pulled me over in a bar and wanted to talk about magic box, I could retire today. Like it is. It is the idea that's sort of been the the, the dream, the the Emerald City for a long time. And it's not that there haven't been engineers who haven't come up with drawings and designs that can probably work. It's that no manufacturer has decided there is a sizable enough market to sell tens of thousands of years to make it worth starting a factory to make these things. And building for, you know, a few people building single family homes just isn't enough. So I do think it's a market issue more than a technical issue. Um, But if you put, we all have problems with mechanical equipment that's too large. Uh, Lois has some great images and research out of the project in New York where just the the coils are too big for these small, super insulated spaces. So getting coils smaller and more synced with either hot water or ventilation or both certainly seems like a path forward. And my sense is the, like it has happened with windows and HRVs in North America, once the market shows itself, the engineering is there. It just has to come together. Well, I mean, Lois, you mentioned very briefly before, but that seems to me like in this move to decarbonizing systems, it seems like there are reasonably obvious pathways on heating and cooling, drive down demand, get mm-hmm. in a heat pump, VRF or some sort of system like that. But there still seems to be um, a, a gap between what we'd like to do in terms of electrifying hot water systems and, and what we what we have in the market now. Is that still true? It's true for the Northeast, yeah, for the cold climate here. We don't have yet. They're out there. They're in Europe. They're in China. The high temperature heat pump water heaters that can put out 175, 180 degree water, the the only ones that we have in the United States on a large scale, I'm thinking large scale, right, for for multifamily, uh, can't put out water that's that hot. 
So you have to do all this finagling to get a supplemental heat exchanger or another heat pump in line with it or something like that. So it's not an inexpensive system, but we just don't have that magic bullet, just pop it in there and it can produce the amount of hot water we need at super cold temperatures outside. That's the big drawback. We do know that there's some manufacturers planning to come in Q1 of next year with their unit that has been being used overseas for years. We had somebody just a year or two ago, let their UL go because they weren't getting enough business and they had a product we could use. And so now we can't use them anymore in the United States. So it's a demand, it's definitely a demand thing. And part of it is because our electricity is so much more expensive than our gas. Right, right. And Monty, you you have your cushy temperate climate there in Vancouver. (laughs) Do you still have the same issues with hot water? Yeah, um, we do. The the tough part is that um, methane sometimes called natural gas, is fantastically cheap. And boilers that burn that gas are fantastically reliable and have been in the market for many, many, many years. You can put that boiler in, close the door on the closet, and check it in 10 years. You sort of don't need to worry about if it's going to work or how it's going to work. That's just a very, very proven technology. And so if you're building a building, a retrofit and building, you're really attracted to both the price point and the reliability of that solution. The heat pumps, you're often having to engineer more solutions to what temperature the water comes back can really matter. Uh, How much supply and when it comes and when your peakings are can really matter. You might need more storage. I mean, there's all these levels of complexity that require both initial cost, but a little bit of management going forward, or it kind of goes sideways soon. And nobody wants to sign up for that. So, but again, I completely agree with Lois. We see these products in, uh, Korea and in Japan for some time, and we see versions of them in China. So it's not that the technology is not there. It's just that they haven't really entered the market and that many of the mechanical engineers are our market, they kind of know it theoretically, but they've never designed one. And they're in the business of reducing risk for their clients. And very few sure. clients want to be the first one on the block to try the new heat pump system. They all want to be tense. Everybody in our business wants to be tense. (laughs) I've been specifying this system for 25 years and no one calls me back after it gets installed. (laughs) So I don't want to try this new thing. It's a a huge challenge in our industry. No question. But I I think, again, if the the incentives were right, it's one of the easier pieces to get over. I mean, again, the, the, the technology, the physics are there. We need more supply chain and we need a better trained installers too it's a more complicated to install a co2 heat pump than it is to install a gas boiler right um and and to be fair the manufacturers need a number of installations here to support the staff to support those units in the field like you yeah. can't just have one <laughs> because yeah. you know just put a plug out california's been a real leader in this and their yeah. heat pump hot water initiatives the, the great thing about much of the climate of california is a regular apartment building performs like a passive house apartment building does in New York or Toronto, you know, because the climate is so mild. So hot water is their largest load, same as it is for a passive house apartment building. Uh, and so they're trying to use the, the size of their market and some requirements to push for heat pump hot water heaters, both at a residential scale and a multi-unit scale. Uh, and certainly here in BC and Washington state, we're kind of trying to draft off their efforts to some degree, their, their leverage to exchange markets. Right. I have some hope that here, with local law 97, which is New York City's yeah. carbon emissions limit bill, you know, first limits are not that aggressive in 2024, but then they come down pretty dramatically in 2030 and they're supposed to continue to come down. I do have some hope that people looking forward to that will 
be a market signal. Like uh, we need this, this heat pump, hot water technology yeah. for our large buildings in this market to meet these num these, these numbers, yeah. I would hope. Well, it will, because if, if you're going to retrofit your building and your choice are change your hot water heater or change all your windows, that's the easy right. choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> How soon can I get that hot water heater? Yeah. Great. This has been a great uh, conversation. Um, I think we're, we're, pretty close to, I think, closing this out. Uh, I, you know, we're in, we're in relatively dark times, right? We're probably moving into a recession, if not a depression in some parts uh, of the, of the world. Um, and I think there's fear that there'll be backsliding um, of climate action goals um, uh, by some folks. We have housing shortages, um, as, as I think Monte mentioned, uh, in most most communities, um, there's in, in North America, there's a supply problem with regard to housing. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, moving forward and looking forward, what gives you hope and, and what role maybe Passive House plays in that? This was a hard one for me. <laughs> what gives me hope? I get very optimistic over a couple cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> you do, actually. <laughs> that can be arranged. Not you take it first. <laughs> I think all of each of us, you know, we're rethinking our place in the ecosystem. What, what's my role? What's my niche? Where do I get my food? Where do I sleep? Where do I work? You know, we're, we're kind of rethinking our, just like a bird gets up in the spring and kind of resorts itself for the summer. We're going through that process and that can be healthy. And there's a public aspect of hope. I do see people rethinking the relationship with cities, the relationship with housing, the relationship with equity in response to the coronavirus. And well, yeah, there's going to be some backsliding to, you know, once you start thinking along some of those lines, I think that'll keep happening. You know, the our past house happy hour calls on Wednesday afternoons have seen a lot of newcomers, a lot of people we've never seen before. We haven't shown up to past house meetings previously. And so there's there's interest, there's curiosity. I think past house is a toolbox. There's nothing in past house that's not part of basic building science for good buildings, whether they living building challenge or net zero or lots of other ways to go at it. But it's a toolbox that's quite useful and that points a path to affordability. And so if we do get public interest in buildings that do better at adaptation, that reduce both their upfront and their long-term carbon, that provide larger apartments in middle densities in more cities, um, Passfaust has a lot of instructive thinking on that. And I, I see hope that people are asking the right questions and looking at those those things. I, I think, too, there, there's a natural political tension, right? I mean, small C conservatives, which might be not exactly the same as what large R Republicans are these days, they want things to say the same. They want things to, they're going to want after this to get back, get back to having Sunday night dinner with the family, get back to Saturday morning golf with the friends. Whereas many progressives, small P or, you know, small D Democrats are going to look for opportunities for change. They're fundamentally about mixing it up and changing it, moving it forward. And my sense is coming out of coronavirus globally, not just in the U.S., that the pendulum is shifting towards people with a greater tolerance for change. I also think it's really important during these times to keep taking care of ourselves personally. Um, I've been trying to learn to work in different patterns and work a little different and find hope in that. I went out and bought myself an electric cargo bike just so I could get out of the car for the little errands, going to the grocery store, going to the beer store, you know, going, going to do some different things. And so I think anything we can do individually that makes us happy and changes our footprint a little bit, no matter how small, do it. Sometimes you got to find hope 
just in today yeah. or have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Both. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I, I think that's a, the one thing that sort of been pulling me along is not letting me sort of slide into anything bad is the fact that we haven't slowed down. And people keep coming to us. We're building our next multifamily. We're doing this. We want to design it to passive house. And so there's this drive in spite of what's happening from, from my, I gotta tell you, multifamily developers I've had the luck to work with um, over the years have really changed my perception of developers. I have worked with yeah. some of the finest people I have ever met that are developers and care so much about their populations. Yeah. It's about bottom line to make it keep happening, but they care so much about what they're doing and they're not stopping. And that to me is very inspiring. Like despite everything that's happening, they are going to provide housing, durable, healthy housing for their occupants. And and I have been inspired by them. Yeah. Yep. Me too. That's great. Don't stop and find hope in now. Those are those are good takeaways for our conversation. Uh, thank you both very much for this. I really, really appreciate it. I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in to Radio BX. And uh, please look, uh, look out for more programming on our calendar uh, in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Everybody stay safe out there. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Yatza. Thank you.